Welcome to a brand new solo episode of Raidercast, the podcast which dives into the myths and mysteries of Lara's world. It's been a while since I did a solo episode, but I really wanted to make some more because I've had so many amazing guests over the last year or so and I haven't really had the chance to sit down and research and write some more on a variety of raidery topics. So this episode is going to do what all good Tomb Raiders do best. It's going to be an excavation. It may end up being a bit morbid, it may be lighter than expected, but either way, I think it's going to be an exciting journey. For this episode, I'm going to throw myself headfirst into the subject of death in Tomb Raider. Right from the start, I want to give Tomb Raider fan legend and previous Raidercast guest Jenny Millward a shout out and a hat tip for the inspiration for this episode. You can bet she'll be back for a future episode of Raidercast 2. So, death. A natural part of life. One of the single biggest driving factors for cultures and religions, for individuals choosing to live life to the fullest, or even to live in fear of what comes next. A great deal of cultures, both modern and ancient, have chosen to bury their deceased in modest graves, or even gigantic tombs surrounded by their earthly treasures, and thank goodness for that or Lara Croft wouldn't have had much to ransack and pillage over the years, would she? Death has always been a vital, crucial part of Tomb Raider. In essence, every Tomb Raider game revolves around the concept of death in one way or another. So it might come as a bit of a surprise that I'm pondering the question, how often does dead really mean dead in Lara's adventures? It's interesting to realise that it isn't often quite as final as we'd immediately presume. Let's dive into the games. I'll try and do a quick run through over the next few minutes and then go a bit more in depth afterwards to explain further. Beware, spoilers ahead, just in case. Tomb Raider 1. Lara raids the tombs of two long-dead Atlanteans and faces off against Natla, who has lived for millennia. Tomb Raider 2. Marco Bartoli takes his own life by plunging the Dagger of Xi'an into his own heart. Tomb Raider 3. Dr. Willard sacrifices himself to be reborn as a transformed being. Tomb Raider 4. Lara raids the tomb of a vengeful yet seemingly immortal god. At the end of the game, Lara falls beneath the pyramid, with the narrative leaving her status of alive or dead up for question. Tomb Raider 5. Lara's friends hold a memorial service for her, while telling us the tales of the Philosopher's Stone, a haunted island, and other artifacts as well. Tomb Raider The Angel of Darkness. We meet an immortal serial killer alchemist, we're introduced to the concept of the dying race of ageless Nephilim, raid the tomb of a monk, and meet Curtis, a man hell-bent on exacting revenge for the murder of his father. Tomb Raider Legend. Lara seeks the truth of the disappearance and potential death of her mother. We meet the Queen of Tiwanaku and King Arthur, both of whom are dead but sealed within giant crystals. Tomb Raider Anniversary. Again, Lara raids the tombs of what she believes are long-dead Atlanteans, only to discover one is just about still alive, Natler is thriving, and Tihokan is missing from his tomb. Tomb Raider Underworld After investigating several real-world realms of the dead, Lara's friend Alistair is shot, she discovers her mother came into contact with a mysterious substance which kept her in a state of living death. Tomb Raider 2013. This tells the story of Yamatai and the immortal Sun Queen Himiko, a series of women who played host to the undying spirit of the original queen. Lara almost loses her friend Sam during a ritual to make her the next host. 
Rise of the Tomb Raider. Lara meets an immortal prophet who discloses the secret to everlasting life was bestowed to him from an ancient mysterious stone artifact. In the downloadable content Blood Ties, we learn more about Richard Croft's obsession with immortality and resurrection, and eventually discover the family crypt beneath the manor. Shadow of the Tomb Raider Lara meets a living lost culture who enact ritual sacrifices in order to please their gods. During the culmination of this story, Lara even embraces her own death. Death, death, and more death. But, like I said, Lara needs tombs to raid, so the more the merrier. Now let's take a deep, geeky look at some of the cultural aspects behind everything I just listed. Tomb Raider 1 the Atlanteans were unearthly entities capable of extremely long life. I'm reluctant to say immortal here, but perhaps invulnerable at least. Following the Tolkien elf method of thought, Atlanteans could likely continue living unless they are killed. At least that seems to fit Natler, who, after repeatedly being shot, ceases to get up and fight anymore. Tihokan's tomb contained an enormous stone sarcophagus, yet Lara didn't open it in this game. Was he in there? Was he alive? Was he dead? Perhaps. Perhaps not. Let's just call him Schrodinger's Atlantean. The only one we can conclusively say is dead is Qualopec, who had decomposed to such a degree that only his skeleton remained. But how do we know that was Qualopec, I hear you ask? Judging by the enormity of the skeleton, I'd venture to say it's a very safe guess that those remains did indeed belong to Qualopec when the size of those legs are measured against fellow Atlantean Natla's unusually big stature. It's worth noting as well that we have zero clue as to Atlantean burial rites and rituals in this game. By the time these rulers had died, the lands and cultures they'd ruled over were no longer Atlantis. They were entombed by pre-Incan and Greek civilizations, which, yes, in the context of Tomb Raider are offshoots of Atlantean culture, but still different enough not to be classed as Atlantean themselves. For Qualopec, whose body was exposed, a somewhat unusual method of burial, we can look to real-world practices and find out more information. Whether or not core design took actual inspiration from reality is unknown in these cases. I suspect they simply had Qualopec on display overlooking the Skion as it looked pretty cool. However, the reality ties into it. A piece from Anthropology.Education from Holly Howell titled In Grave Details, Burial Rituals Among Ancient and Modern Religious Cultures in Northern Peru reads... Even after the burial ceremonies were over, the living tried to penetrate the circles of the dead. Evidence suggests that during certain funerary rituals, the Mochica damaged the pyramid structures and reopened the graves in order to interact with their dead ancestors. Through food and song, death was revitalized and reinvigorated. In the spirited dance of bones, death left fragments of vitality among the living. Is it possible that the culture who originally entombed Qualopec at some point raided his tomb themselves and put him on display as part of the aforementioned revitalizing, life-affirming rituals? Aside from Lara's guide at the start of Tomb Raider 1, R.I.P., this is the first instance we see of death in Tomb Raider, and speaking in terms of ancient cultures, it's the first instance we see death as being inextricably tied to life, living and being alive. 
Even Qualopec's final position suggests he was watching over the Skion, as a guardian, dead but protective. Natla's continued existence, however, throws the concept of death into disarray. She can certainly take a lot of bullets even when she's down. Do we really know she's dead, or did Lara just incapacitate her for slightly longer, giving her the opportunity to escape? Was Natla just waking up as the pyramid collapsed around her in that game? We'll never know. I expect if the story elements from Tomb Raider 1 are ever re-included, we'll be getting the crystal version from Anniversary, which has a slightly different aspect which we'll investigate later on. Moving on to Tomb Raider 2 with some more grim themes that some listeners and viewers may wish to skip, the myth of the Dagger of Xi'an suggests that plunging the dagger into your heart will unleash the power of the dragon, and transform the deceased into a colossal, fire-breathing beast. Immediately, we're faced with a dual concept, death and new life, a sacrifice and a reward, complete loss followed by complete power, a duality. My initial thought for this went straight to a variation on the idea of seppuku, a very old Japanese custom of suicide to restore honour. It sounds like one of the more horrible ways to die if I'm honest, as it required the practitioner to slice open their own belly and allow the innards to fall out. A second person was known to be on standby to decapitate the person should they go into shock. Yikes. However, there are some things wrong with this. Firstly, the practice I described is Japanese, and the myth of the dagger is Chinese. Secondly, it dealt with disembowelment and not puncturing the heart. And finally, the ancient Chinese would likely have never performed it due to extreme reverence for the body, and ideals to keep it from all harm. There were many types of funerary rites and rituals when it came to them. They traditionally buried their dead as still in practice today, and the first Kin Emperor, who was the inspiration for the Dragon Emperor in the opening cutscene of Tomb Raider 2, was buried at Xi'an along with his army of terracotta warriors who stood guard over his tomb. These warriors are also present within Tomb Raider 2's Temple of Xi'an level, and we even see similar ones come to life in the floating islands. The significance being that the dead require protecting. That even though they're no longer living, there's an aspect of them which can still be harmed, like a tangible spin on life after death. It's interesting as well that the story of Tomb Raider 2 doesn't revolve around someone from China enacting a Chinese myth. Our antagonist is Marco Bartoli, an Italian cultist from a deeply religious Catholic society. The idea of taking your own life alone would be seen as a sin punishable by condemnation to hell, but combine that with the fact that Marco did it with the intention of acquiring the powers of a dragon, a biblical symbol of the devil, and we're talking some serious no-no time in Satan's fiery torture pits here. Bartoli was basically double doomed. All after spending a lifetime hunting for the dagger, and only getting to be a dragon for about a minute? I bet he was so mad. On to Tomb Raider 3, which takes a more scientific view on the topic. Here, the antagonist is a scientist called Dr. Willard, a relatively smart man with his eyes on the prize of using the gene-enhancing powers of an ancient meteorite to evolve beyond the normal human form. Think of it like CRISPR, but instead of curing cancer, it's for growing gigantic spider legs, shrinking your arms, mashing your face up, and giving you 17 extra eyes. So where does death come into this? It's a little bit of a vague one, but I never presumed Willard actually survived the transformation. 
Think of it like the ship of Theseus. If every part of Willard has changed and transformed into something new, is it still Willard? Or has Willard effectively died and the beast we see is something or someone entirely new? When taken like this, it's slightly reminiscent of Tomb Raider 2's death, then transformation and upgrading sort of dying. Life from death, order from chaos, new life from the old, and it's starting to beg the question, if they still exist, did they really die? With this in mind, we're beginning to see a bit of a trend in Tomb Raider, that of people who died, but then keep living in some form. The Last Revelation presents a variety of takes on death. Running throughout we have the theme of ancient Egyptian customs. The adventure itself is based on Lara awakening a vengeful god who is sealed inside a torture chamber sarcophagus. Electrified spikes pierced his entire body and his blood turned to sand, though I have to admit I'm unsure of that particular significance. Set was, according to Egyptian mythology, the god of storms, chaos and the desert. So perhaps it's just alluding that he returned to his purest, divine form, becoming the desert sands of Egypt in a very symbolic way. We can assume that when Set turned to sand, his physical form was destroyed and transformed. Otherwise, what would have stopped him climbing out of the sarcophagus right then and there when Lara removed the amulet? So, Set joins the ranks of previous Tomb Raider villains whose physical form was destroyed, and yet continued to exist as something else. But Set is a god. The destruction of his body couldn't kill him, and the sacred texts of Semeket are very specific. Set was imprisoned, and with the removal of the amulet would be free. Even the amulet of Horus itself is an Ankh, a symbol of life and the living. Aside from Set, there are countless mummies throughout the game, particularly around Set's supposed burial chamber. Ancient Egyptians believed that the body needed to be preserved upon death, so that the soul could use its form in the afterlife, so the practice of mummification began. Bodies were wrapped in bandages and magical charms and amulets were held within to grant the deceased good fortune and protection on their journey through the underworld and to the afterlife. They didn't see death as the end, merely part of the journey of everlasting life. The soul endures, and so the person always exists. As part of the afterlife journey as detailed in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, the soul, or Ka, is met by Anubis and Toth, or Thoth, two wise afterlife deities with the head of a jackal and head of an ibis, respectively. Their role is to assess the quality of life lived by the newly departed and weigh their heart against the feather of the goddess Mart, to represent truth and justice. I have not committed sin. I have not committed robbery with violence. I have not stolen. I have not slain men and women. I have The 42 negative confessions were recited, with the deceased pledging not to have commit any of them. However, if they had, there was the chance their hearts would speak against them, condemning them to be devoured by the monstrous entity known as Amit. I have not uttered curses. I have not committed adultery. I have made none to weep. For more information on Amit, check out the previous Demonology episode of Raidercast. There were even known to be spells to protect the deceased just in case their hearts tried to betray them, like an Egyptian spin on 
The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. But before you think this is one big digression, this process is represented at the end of the Last Revelation, within the Temple of Horus. Lara must weigh sacred waters against a feather, and should she fail in the puzzle, the Amit creature is freed to devour her. Of course, Lara herself falls beneath the pyramid at the end of the game, which left fans wondering if she herself had died. Core Design said they intended it to be a symbolic death of her old self, and that her later adventures would see her reborn into her true self once more. It's an extremely death-heavy adventure. Lara ventures from tomb to tomb, from burial chambers and mastabas, pyramids, and finds herself overwhelmed by the end. It's absolutely one of the darkest tales in the series, and personally, I find the end pretty fitting after all Lara goes through. Also, I'm a sucker for a story that's bookended quite nicely like this, where Von Croy falls and is left by Lara at the beginning, and then the situation is eventually mirrored. When it comes to the shorter Chronicles game, the concept of death rears up on occasion, the main premise of the game being Lara's friends holding a memorial for her. A statue has been erected in her honour in the vast grounds of Croft Manor, immortalising the lost adventurer, setting her presence in stone for all time. As Winston says, She will live on forever in our hearts. A common thing to be heard and said upon losing someone. The belief that people are never really gone as long as we remember them. As an aside, go and watch Coco. Just go and watch it. Take tissues. But Winston's statement takes on another level of meaning when we consider just how much this concept appears to be prevalent in the series. Dead, but not gone. Dead, but continuing to live on. The concept is mirrored again by the hanging corpse from the gallows tree on the Black Isle. He's a dead guy, referring to how they cut out his heart, but he lives on. A bit of an on-the-nose metaphor for Lara being cut out of our lives, really. Okay, that one's a bit cheesy, but again, the concept is there for all to see. Someone dead, but continuing to be alive. The theme is constantly reinforced during the events of the Angel of Darkness. Von Croy appears to be one of the first main characters in the series who dies completely. He's killed at his home by a mysterious intruder, and that's it. He's dead. And gone. No resurrection, no transformation, no second chance at an afterlife to say goodbye. It's brutal and final. It's the first death of its kind in Tomb Raider. The actual death of someone important to Lara, and it comes as a shock. It's sudden and horrifying. Lara's adventure is spurred on by this event. In an attempt to clear her name and avenge her former mentor, adversary, and friend's killer, Lara must throw herself into a dark world of sorcery, alchemy, forgotten races, secret societies, and evil cults. The goal of Lara's primary antagonist, Eckhart the Black Alchemist, is to continue to cheat death. His life was prolonged by the magic of an ancient race known as the Nephilim who, in exchange, wanted his help to resurrect, revive, and rebreed their race back into existence. We Nephilim have only ever been trying to survive. Eckhart's means of gaining immortality involved murdering others, which is a pretty grim idea. Stealing life from others to prolong your own? During one point in his past, Eckhart was held prisoner by supernatural means in a state of living death. Vita quasi mor, or mortua vivendi. Alive but dead, or dead but alive, depending on your point of view. 
During both AOD and Chronicles, Lara actually encounters ghosts, literal proof that people endure or continue to exist after death. It couldn't be any clearer at this point. Along the way, Lara meets Curtis, the presumed final initiate to an ancient order of spiritual warriors known as the Lux Veritatis, who is on his own mission of revenge after Eckhart murdered his father. It seems that almost every narrative string in the Angel of Darkness is either begun by, or has the goal of, death. Lara herself is on a symbolic mission of rebirth throughout the game, finding her old self, coming back from her darkest moment, stepping back from the brink of death. The gothic architecture of the game is perfect, which I'll get into in a moment. With the first part of the game set in urban, modern environments, Lara gradually finds her path leads her deeper and deeper underground as she regains her strength and sense of self along the way. From being in an out-of-practice state, far away from her element, to finding herself in an ancient tomb, the narrative moment of Lara's growth, her rebirth, is captured perfectly in Jenny Millward's Angel of Darkness novelization. I took my time following every rib and ridge of stone with my boots flexible tread at times i was barely touching the wall at all placing my whole weight on a few perilous centimeters as i leaned across to gain new purchase there was a rhythm in my step a steady little one two three beat that i counted dancing from one point to another my earlier stretching exercises had paid off I didn't feel a single twinge as my whole body bent and flexed. It was quite cold in the chamber, but my working muscles kept me comfortably warm. By the time I dropped to the ground, stumbling a little to get my balance, I was sweaty, tingling and smiling in triumph. I looked back up. Unable to resist the sudden urge to shout. Hello! Just to hear the echoes. Sheer joy filled me for a few precious moments, uniting me with a strength I thought I'd buried beyond recovery. It's wonderful to note here that in the Tomb of Ancients and Hall of Seasons, when Lara finally rediscovers herself, her true tomb-raiding self once more, that she's surrounded by gothic architecture, gargoyles, skeletal and skull decorations. Within this ancient Christian tomb, Lara is faced with several designs worthy of being memento mori. Decorations, keepsakes, objects, sculptures, designs, all with the purpose of conveying one message, remember that you will die. Traditionally, a message meant to inspire the living to live piously, so that, upon death, they will be permitted to heaven. But there's a flip side to Memento Mori, which is fantastically fitting for Lara in this particular moment. Remember that you will die also suggests that you should remember to live. Carpe diem, seize the day, live for the moment. After being faced with near-death experience, she reclused herself, hiding away from life, and here, surrounded by these reminders of death, she's reminded to live. She finds herself joyous and strong. She finds her purpose and chooses life. With Kor's era behind us, we move on to Tomb Raider Legend, which presented an even more fantastical view of death. 
Throughout this adventure, Lara is on a quest to discover the truth of what happened to her mother. To all intents and purposes, Amelia Croft died at the beginning of the game when she vanished into thin air at the dais in Nepal, leaving Lara to grow up in the care of her distant, grieving father. It can be debated that this game follows the theme of discovering the truth of why our loved ones leave us, the reasons behind death, and learning how to grieve and deal with it. However, as absent and symbolically dead as Amelia may have been during that period, Lara's father Richard never gave up the belief that she was alive, and still out there. He seems to have remained the first step of the seven stages of grief, denial, for the remainder of his life. Lara, on the other hand, progressed quickly through guilt. All these years I blamed myself, and it was you! You killed her! Killed her! She's not! and to bargaining in her search for truth with a glimmer of hope that her father was right. For years my father believed Mother was alive. It was what kept him going. I pitied him for thinking that way. Along the way, Lara ventures into a few tombs, each containing the deceased remains of an ancient ruler, but each one found sealed inside a large crystal. The Queen of Tiwanaku in Bolivia and King Arthur in England, civilizations and ages apart, were both buried in this highly unusual way. This custom is only seen in one other instance. During Tomb Raider Anniversary's retelling of Tomb Raider 1, the Atlantean Tihokan is seen magically sealing Natla inside a crystal as punishment, keeping her in stasis. So are we to believe that this Queen and King were sealed in crystals during some very late stage Atlantean ritual? Personally, I believe so. The breadcrumbs are there for us to follow, and when you consider Tihokan was missing from his tomb in Anniversary, the implication is that this immortal being was still around at least a few hundred years ago, still sealing people inside crystals. Perhaps not as punishment, in the case of these two, however. But looking at the real-life myth of Arthur, there's a legend of a prophecy which says that one day Arthur will return to rule. Considering Natla broke free of her crystal, what's to say Arthur wouldn't one day have returned, like Han Solo from Carbonite? I guess it depends whether or not he was actually dead before being encased in crystal, and as of now, that's something we can't determine. During a recent episode, Noah Hughes from Crystal Dynamics suggested that Atlantis was behind everything in Tomb Raider, so if we're getting a unified timeline one of these days, who's to say what we're going to see? We do look at the... Um the Atlantis thread as as sort of core underpinnings to the franchise. Um, so those characters do have roles in the background um, and, and it's exciting for us to, to have the opportunity to weave some of those things in. Um, but I think for it, we can't speak to specific um, intent in that context. Another symbolic death and rebirth happens in the form of Lara's old friend Amanda. During an archaeological dig in Peru, Amanda is accidentally sealed inside a crumbling tomb. However, when Lara encounters her years later, she tells Amanda that they'd thought of that tomb like a memorial for her. To everyone, Amanda was dead. And yet she lives. Symbolically reborn out of the tomb in a Jesus-like fashion, Amanda's demeanour changed drastically from young and naive to hardened, confident, powerful. Her time being dead, or walking through the underworld and emerging, had rewarded her with the supernatural powers of the Wraith Stone of Tiwanaku. Amanda returned from her own personal hell with demonic powers. 
Briefly returning to the story of Anniversary, we can also gather another point from Atlantean lore. Natla cannot die. She can't be killed with bullets, or with lava, or even by crushing her with the weight of a pyramid. The concept of death isn't even a factor for this character. In the final part of this trilogy, Underworld, Lara ventures on another dark quest through several literal underworlds to determine the true fate of her mother, who she believes now to be in Avalon, a mythological Celtic realm. The most prominent visuals of death in this game come from Shibalba, the Maya underworld where Lara encounters skeletal statues depicting the lords of the dead. These gods and their demon friends were said to play tricks on anyone who visited their realm, loving nothing more than to humiliate, maim or kill anyone unfortunate enough to visit. Theirs was certainly a pretty grim view of death. Lara was right when she explained the meaning of Shibalba as the place of fear. According to the Popol Vuh, ancient manuscripts describing their culture and mythology, ten of the demonic gods of death were in charge of causing outright misery to humans. They worked in pairs, always having a buddy. Demons known as Flying Scab and Gathered Blood would poison blood and make people sick. Pus Demon and Jaundice Demon would cause people's bodies to swell up. The Bone Staff and Skull Staff turned dead bodies into skeletons. Sweeping demon and stabbing demon hide in the unswept areas of houses and stab people to death. And finally, wing and packstrap would cause people walking around outdoors to die coughing up blood. Lovely, really. The rooms they use to test and torment humans are depicted within Tomb Raider Underworld, such as the rooms where blades move around of their own free will, the jaguar room full of hungry jaguars, the dark room, behave, and the hot room full of fire to burn people to a crisp. The Popolver also describes how humans on Earth would sacrifice victims to appease the gods of Shibalba, which is something we'll come back to when we get to Shadow of the Tomb Raider. Also, Alistair dies during this game shot through the chest and dying moments later. It's sudden, surprising, and like Von Croy's actual death, is very final, serving as a point of motivation for Lara to rage against the villain. Up until that point of the trilogy, the antagonists Amanda and Natla were largely going about their own business, keeping themselves to themselves, while Lara flitted around in and out of their business with all of the importance of an annoying fly that wouldn't leave them alone. So Alistair's death was a point which kicked Lara into the mindset of thinking, well, now it's actually personal. Now it's not just about them trying to find Avalon of their own ambiguous reasons, and me trying to find out the truth about my mother. Now their stories are actively tied to mine, and I'm out for revenge. Natla reveals that Amelia is actually in another underworld, the Norse Helheim, so named after their goddess Hel, depicted as half-human, half-skeleton. And would you believe it, that's precisely how Amelia looks when Lara finally discovers her. Amelia's fate ties in directly to the mythological substance called Eater, a liquid which would kill the living but also reanimate the dead. Zombie juice, effectively, an underground ocean of umbrella cause T-virus. The idea again, coming on strong, that dead doesn't mean dead. Life after death, another form of life after death. At some point we can assume Amelia came into contact with the substance which killed her and reanimated her body in the fitting form of the goddess of the underworld, Amelia the living dead. Lara, filled with grief, fills her mother with lead. Upon escaping, Lara accepts her mother's death and bids her rest in peace, keeping Amelia alive only in her memories. 
though this isn't the last instance of death in the game. Even Natla's plan involved the death and rebirth of life on Earth. Her goal was to unleash the power of the Jormungandr device, crack open the world at its seams, fill the skies with toxic clouds, and have vague yet ominous seventh age begin from the ashes of the old world, like a phoenix rising from the fiery remains. Death followed by life, appearing in a cyclical pattern we can't seem to stop encountering. To stop this, Lara's quest leads her to seek out Thor's hammer, a weapon with the power to kill gods. Rather like the Angel of Darkness's periap shards, these have the ability to end immortality. However, the situation only allowed Lara to throw it at Natla from a fair distance away, and even in the downloadable content of Underworld, Natla still lived. Think about it. Did the doppelganger even succeed in killing Natla right at the end? I doubt it, somehow. We didn't see it, as much as she was suffering. I have a suspicion that it isn't the last we've seen of Natla, but when we see her again, I can't imagine it's going to be a pretty sight. So the Legend timeline ended, and out of its ashes rose the Survivor trilogy. These three games tell the story of Lara following in her father's footsteps as he fought to seek out the truth behind the idea of resurrection and immortality, and this episode is writing itself at this point. The brief backstory being that during Lara's childhood, Amelia suffered a fatal plane accident, just as Richard believed he'd discovered the secrets he'd sought. He even tried to revive Amelia by using this elixir of life, but it didn't work. His research shifted focus, and he spent the rest of his life trying to determine the secrets of life after death, heartbroken over this loss and unable to move on. On Lara's first big outing, she discovers Yamatai, a lost island of mystery in the Dragon's Triangle in the region of Japan. The island is guarded by, surprise surprise, the undead soldiers of the first Sun Queen, Himiko. They protect their land and their queen from harm, slaughtering any who encounter them. However, Himiko is dead, or at least it would seem. Except, this is Tomb Raider, and as always, dead doesn't mean dead as we now know. Himiko had employed magic to transfer her actual soul from person to person, or vessel to vessel, to ensure she lived forever. It's precisely what Richard was looking for, evidence of life after death, and even a potential way he'd have been able to reunite with Amelia. But during the story, Lara interrupts the ritual of the soul transfer by destroying the corpse vessel of the previous Sun Queen. The magic dissipates, the apparent power of the storms of Yamatai subside, and we must presume Himiko was at last destroyed. However, it seems at least a fragment of Himiko's spirit made it into Lara's friend Sam, but that was a matter for the comics to deal with. Even so, it followed the pattern. Even dead, Himiko persisted to endure. The ideas of Richard Croft had been revived. It seems his research was correct, and it spurs new life in Lara to continue his work. In the events of Rise of the Tomb Raider, Lara follows in the footsteps of the Deathless Prophet, a Middle Eastern figure who, legend tells, conquered death and found the secret to everlasting life. A natural step for Lara to investigate. Not only does she discover the Prophet and his tribe living in the geothermal valleys of Siberia, but that this extended existence had been granted by something they knew as the Divine Source, a crystalline stone-like object of unknown origin. It was also being hunted by two particular members of the Order of Trinity, a secret military organisation hunting for artefacts of the ancient world. Anna and her brother Constantine 
desperately sought out the powers of the source for their own reasons. Constantine believed himself plagued or blessed with stigmata, wounds which had appeared on his hands which matched the wounds of Christ on the cross. He interpreted these as a sign from above to carry out God's work on earth. This apparently included obtaining immortality from the divine source. What he didn't realise however was that his sister Anna had given him those wounds as he slept as a youngster to strengthen his faith. With his faith reborn, he went on to commit atrocities. Anna herself, however, wished to use the source to cure a fatal illness and save herself from certain death. At one point, Lara finds herself in the lost city of Katesh, surrounded by armies of undead soldiers known as the Deathless. These seemingly dead but undying soldiers mimicked the Stormguard of Yamatai, protecting the city and the divine source from outsiders. Lara makes a point of telling Anna that all Trinity has ever wrought is death, in an attempt to sway her allegiance but it's not enough. Anna is committed to saving her own life. Lara's approach, however, has effectively turned her against her father's research. Rather than following it, she chooses to see the destruction of the divine source as a sacrifice she was willing to make. Lara is willing to die to protect humanity's ability to die. Anna, alternatively, took the stance that humans shouldn't have to die, but Lara understands that death is a part of life, that it's what makes us human, something that very, very few villains and antagonists in Tomb Raider have managed to grasp. It's an interesting argument, and I'm not sure that Lara would have been villainous to join Anna and save humanity from death on a personal note. After all, a world without death or suffering sounds like a very benign goal. But with Anna being part of Trinity, her allegiance to an organisation which has done so much wrong, we just can't trust that Anna and Trinity would have used the divine source for the benefit of mankind rather than just for the benefit of themselves and nobody else. This brings us finally to Shadow of the Tomb Raider, the final part of the Survivor trilogy. While on a mission to foil Trinity's plans, Lara steals an ancient dagger and as a result sets off a series of catastrophic, cataclysmic events. A flood kills a good deal of the local population. A landslide and an earthquake kills many more. Lara feels directly responsible for this, and takes it upon herself to fix the situation by sticking the magic dagger into a magic box and somehow making everything better. So right from the start, there are strong themes of death and guilt, while the whole story is packed full of symbolism of death and rebirth. The game opens with Lara walking through the crowds at Dia de los Muertos, a holiday commonly celebrated in Mexico to remember the dead. Families gather to reminisce, hold parties and set up ofrendas, type of altars with photos of and offerings for the deceased. It is a beautiful, colourful celebration of life and death and honours those who have passed with joy and song and gratitude of lives well lived. In Tomb Raider it directly points to the theme of death and even counters the other darker messages presented by the series' villains. It goes against the idea that death is the end, and it's nicely presented within Lara's narrative journey of grief and acceptance. At one point, Lara encounters a lost civilization who still perform ritual human sacrifice to appease the gods, and grant their people protection. It follows the mentality that killing others will somehow allow the killer to live, as present in Eckhart's methods from the Angel of Darkness, and touched upon in the concept of Himiko's soul transfer ritual. Culturally, it was more of a take this person instead of us sort of thing, 
one dies so that others may live. And that's a very basic explanation. Within each tomb around Paititi, Lara gains new knowledge. Literally, as part of the gameplay, this is something that occasionally happened throughout the series. However, from Rise and Shadow, it also ties into the gameplay. Lara receives new skills and upgrades from raiding tombs, conveying the idea that the dead, though having passed, have something to teach us. That tombs, and by extension, death, are an opportunity for reflection and learning. The plot revolves around an eclipse, the symbolic death and rebirth of the sun, and how, with the power of the dagger and the silver box, their bearer could remake the world. The details on this are vague, but what we can gather is that the user's vision for the world would become reality, erasing the pre-existing world and timeline. Here, Lara has the chance to resurrect the dead, quite literally. She is imbued with the power of a god, and, making good on her views from the end of Rise of the Tomb Raider, accepts death as a part of life, willingly allowing herself to be sacrificed to save the world. Lara is practically Jesus at this point. However, when she's given the power to reverse death, she merely visits the memory of her family to say goodbye. Honestly, it's a touching, poignant moment, narratively speaking. She's literally handed the deepest wish she's ever had, along with tangible proof for the wishes of her father, and instead chooses life and the lives of everyone else while keeping her family alive in her memory alone. It's a pretty fascinating journey from start to finish, isn't it? How the theme of death is so utterly prevalent throughout the series, yet how vehemently it's fought against. From the beginning, death has been a terrifying force, a dark, unstoppable presence that villains dealt out and raged against. Yet, so often, we saw that dead doesn't mean dead. That life after death is so common, that life doesn't end when a person dies. Whether they live on in some form, or they're reborn anew, either symbolically or quite literally, whether they transform into something other than human, it always raises the question, if they still exist, did they ever really die? And if they didn't die, then what are these villains so afraid of? Lara is the only one who sees it for what it is in reality, a part of life, a journey we must all take, whether we personally see it as the end or not. Whether we believe in an afterlife or don't, is not something we can stop, nor is it something we can fight, because death is what makes us human. We have a finite time on Earth to live our lives and to enjoy it. To remove death removes the agency of life. It loses its shine, its meaning. Death makes the time we have alive even more special. As painful and destructive as it can be, it's an inevitability that, counter to the belief of Lara's antagonists, shouldn't be feared. It seems that Lara is the only one truly content at peace with the concept of death and dying in the whole series. Her journey as the Tomb Raider has made her a close acquaintance of death. The placement of the Day of the Dead celebrations in Shadow of the Tomb Raider is no coincidence, but again provides a wonderful thematic bookend for the story, starting with the message that we can continue living while honouring the dead, and ending with Lara's acceptance of this idea as she bids farewell to her parents. Life after death, for them, comes in the form of Lara herself, legacy as everlasting life. Her journey allowed her to understand grief, to come to terms with loss, 
but also conversely, to know hope and joy, and let her recognise the significance and importance of how to live, while learning to keep those we loved and lost alive in our hearts. Because if we've learned anything from this, it's that those who are dead are never truly gone, and that we can continue to live while carrying them in our memories. <laughs>